Hey guys, welcome back to today's episode. Ashley, how are you, babe? I'm doing great, Ange. How are you, hon? I'm doing good. We have moved locations, guys, so we just have to like let you know that we, uh, yeah, we are recording in a new location today, and it's actually underneath my stairs. <laughs> it's pretty cute. It's pretty cozy. Um, I was just telling Ange, it makes me feel like I'm a little bit Harry Potter today, which um, I'm going to totally embrace. Totally, totally. And um, one of the reasons why we do this kind of thing is actually in relation to sound. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard people announce from their podcast that they've been in like closets or that they've been in small spaces but we're gonna give it a try and see if you guys uh, notice or if it makes our editor's life a little bit easier (laughs) sounds good yes I actually was listening to a podcast the other day and she was saying how her kids were online learning and she's talking into her pillows on her bed right now and so we're kind of mimicking a little bit of that um But yeah, we're excited regardless of location. (laughs) Totally, totally. Now for today's episode, guys, we are doing another Q&A. So we want to thank you guys for submitting your questions. We look forward to answering them today. And uh, Ash? Yeah, so we'll start with, yeah, we'll start with our first question. It comes from Haley. She asks, is intermittent fasting just to manage calorie intake or does it have an effect on metabolism and when you're actually burning those calories to help with maintaining or losing weight? And this is a great question. I mean, we just did our intermittent fasting episode, but um, yeah, it's, it's funny because I think a lot of people feel like, okay, if I'm not eating, then something magical should be happening in my body, right? But really what they've seen with a lot of the studies that they've done with it is that it really has zero impact in terms of what you're going to weigh on the scale or the amount of um, body fat that you're going to be able to remove from your body. Also, studies vary from from men to women. So, first of all, I wanted to say with the, like calorie restriction versus intermittent fasting, I think really it's just the fact that for a lot of people, it can be more doable to restrict your calories if you shorten that window. So if you're trying to diet by cutting out a meal, it can make the other meals maybe a little bit um, higher in calories or make it so it's a little bit more doable. Right. So it's more of a, more from a sustainability factor, I would say, that that um, comes into play. And then the other interesting thing is you're saying that Haley's asking this question, and that's actually really important because what happens with men and women is they've actually seen that with women, it can impact your hormones in a way that it doesn't affect men. So intermittent fasting actually works a little bit better for men than women. Um, obviously, we do inter- intermittent fasting. It works really great with our lifestyle. But one thing I want to bring to everybody's attention is it actually can have an impact on your hormones. And if you are trying to have a baby, it can have an impact on ovulation. So your oh. body will essentially say hey, not time to release an egg. So if you're trying to have a baby, then it can really have an impact. Um, And yeah, in terms of the way that the female body functions, if we think about evolution and the way that like what that would look like for women versus men, Mm -hmm. women would often not be the people who would have to go and fast for multiple days in a row, whereas men out and hunting maybe were fasting for longer periods of time, where women were maybe eating fruits and vegetables, not having to go out and um, and get meat. So the way that the body adapted and the way that hormones evolved, is we 
essentially see that for men, it works a little bit better than females. And especially if you're trying to have a baby, it's something to be mindful of in terms of the way that it may, yeah. Okay. Impact you. Okay. So. One thing that I have a question about in relation to kind of this question, um, and you touched on it with the first part of the question, is that the calories in, regardless, it's calories in, calories out, the weight on the scale maybe won't shift from that. Now, something I've heard, and I don't know where I heard it, and it maybe is absolutely false, so I'd love your input, is by closing that window a little bit of eating, by making it smaller, even if you're eating the same amount of food, during the non-eating hours, during that fast, your body has more, I guess, opportunity to heal, to um, metabolize things, to I, just function all the way around better because it's not so busy all the time digesting food. Is that real? Is that fake? Is that just hogwash I have no idea um, but by giving your body a break from digesting all the time right when we're eating, kind of around the clock, are we actually allowing our body that space and time to do other things? Mm -hmm. And that's where the health benefits of intermittent fasting come into place. Okay. So when we're looking at the way that it can help your body, it does help with insulin resistance. So it helps your body be able to use carbohydrates in a more efficient way. It helps your heart be able to function a little bit better. It helps your brain be able to function a little bit better. It helps with all of those things that have to do with health. But when we're just looking at the metabolism and just looking at, are you going to lose more weight? Research hasn't been able to support that it actually makes your metabolism do that right. there are okay. speculations that that may be true but they haven't been able to prove it with research and that happens a lot with nutrition you have a lot of people that you want to do a study on in relation to something nutritionally but most people can't make it to the end of a study right right a lot of people they want to do a 12-month study on intermittent fasting on people most of the people essentially um die off halfway through and people tend to lose the same amount of weight from the people that are committed whether they are eating those calories amongst the entire day right. or a certain period but if you start with 100 people and then only half of them end up finishing the study right. you're looking at a different sample group and how many women are in there how many men are in there and then again I don't know how you feel associated with your period but women are tend to be really good for about three weeks of the month and then they have like a week yeah. where oh things, God, are, yeah. things are a little bananas and they can't really explain why they can be so good with their diet and then all these crazy hormones happen and right. then things are just out the window right so that's where we really see when they're trying to study anything nutritionally it is right. very hard to come to strong conclusions and that's where I always say like honestly you just have to feel what feels best for you in this season of your life and that's not always the same what's working really well for me right now wouldn't have worked well for me like three years ago and I right. recognize that right and mm -hmm. it's really just I think anything nutritionally, if you get nuggets of information from any of our episodes and you're like, hey, I really want to try that, give it a go. But please don't say that we're gospel. <laughs> like, <laughs> Give it a go. If it sucks for you or doesn't feel good for you, that is okay. We are way too diverse of people. Um, so I think it's just recognizing what makes the most sense for you, giving it a go. And then if it's not working, that's good. For sure. And we do want to keep doing Q&A. So if based on any podcast that does come up or any of the information you're getting that you do have questions about, please shoot them our way and we will do our best to answer them and also bring them up in a podcast because you will not be the only one with that question. Totally.
100%. Yeah. So I think with that, Angela, we'll move on to question number two. Sure thing. All right. This one comes from Christina, and she's asking a kid-related question. And so she says here, how do I approach healthy eating with my kids? I want them to eat healthy, nutritious foods, but don't want to make sugary foods or sweets feel like they are bad or, sorry, I'm trying to read this a little bit further away, bad or extra special um, thus making them want more. I want there to be healthy balance, but not sure how to go about it without making some foods seem good or other foods seem bad. Mm, I love this question. Obviously, we are right in the midst of that as moms. Um, the first thing I want to just kind of commend you for is A, caring as a mom. The fact that you care is amazing, Christina. And for any mom that's listening and is like, oh, I care about the nutrition that is going into my child's body. I think that that's just something to like commend you, commend you for. For sure. And I think so often um, we want to do a good job as moms, both with our parenting and also with the food stuff. But sometimes I think the first thing to come out and say is like, we need to know what's our job and what's our kid's job. So that first piece is, yep, we're going to buy the groceries. We're going to maybe prep some meals. We're going to make meals enjoyable. We're going to bring everybody around a table. But trying to make our kids eat something isn't our job, right? On their side of things is they decide, do I even want to eat right now? If they don't want to eat, I think we just let them not eat. If they don't want to eat, just let it be. It's okay. It's okay. And the second piece of that is they can decide how much they want to eat of something versus us trying to push it down their throat of, oh, you have to eat this amount. And I think the other part is there's going to be things that they want to try, And there's going to be other things that they don't want to try. And the more that we try to force it one way or the other versus letting them be their own individual creatures who can make their own decisions, um, we may be really surprised by their ability to do that when we don't say anything, right? When we're not saying like, oh, you have to have this or you have to eat right now. You can remind them, I think, and say, hey, you know what? We're going to be going on a bike ride in a half an hour, so I'm going to have some food. Your brother's going to have some food. Are you hungry? And if they're like, nope, not hungry. Cool. I think it's just letting those pieces, those pieces of it be versus like forcing, forcing that they have to. Because I think as humans, it is natural human nature to want to be able to make our own decisions. And we want our kids to make good decisions without us trying to influence that. So I think that's like the first piece of it is just. You can stock the shelves, you can have it there, but just allowing that piece to go, I think is such a powerful um, part of it. The second thing is like kids mimic us more so than what we say. Cause you you (laughs) can say like, Hey, do this, don't do that. But they mimic what you're doing. They mimic what they see in their house. What does that look like for mom and dad Mm -hmm. or whatever the um, dynamic of your family is? What do they see? That's what kids, especially young kids, are going to mimic. Right. What are they going to see you saying? What are they going to see you um, doing? And I think so often with that is, are you, like, eating slowly, undistracted, like, stopping when you're 75% full versus, like, stuffing your face? They're going to mimic a lot of that, and they're going to mimic what they see without us necessarily saying, do this don't do that. Right. Mm -hmm. So you serve it, um, without the expectation of they have to necessarily consume that. And even the interaction around that, right. So for example, I would think of, 
something I wouldn't think my kids would necessarily notice, but let's say one thing I like to make is tarts. And so if I, if Cam's trying to eat tarts and I'm like, and I tell him, I like swat his hand and say, those aren't for right now. They're for after supper, right? Making it kind of that, oh, mom's giving dad shit for this, right? Like, mm. oh, he shouldn't do that. Or oh, that's a food that's a dessert food or, right? Mm. It, I think sometimes we don't think our kids are watching the way that we kind of get our spouses and shit for different things, mm-hmm. right? We think, oh, this is about my spouse, but we forget that they are, our kids are hearing the way that we're talking about what their behavior is around food. Totally. Um, so, Ange, just in relation to that very first question, I know you talked about how not trying to force foods down their throat, making sure that the shelves are stocked. And I I see that with, I'm going to use the word nutritious foods, more of those veggies, fruits, the things that in our brain we go, yeah, I want my kids to eat these foods, right? And then the other side of it is the sweets, the treats, the all of those sugary, tasty things. They're going to be there sometimes. How do we... I don't want to say limit, but in a sense, limit or teach them about those foods without those being a forbidden fruit of I can't ever have this. So when I can, I'm going to shove my face so full. My tummy's going to hurt, but this is my one tiny little window. And so I must, it's almost like binging. Mm -hmm. So how I I understand the like navigating the, the healthy I put quotes around that healthy foods, but what happens when it comes to those things that in our mind and in our world should be treats? We don't want our kids always wanting ice cream for breakfast, always eating pie, always, right? We, we don't because we know that that sugar, that many carbs isn't actually good for them. So that good food, bad food does come into play because we know there are certain foods that are really good for our children and foods that aren't as good for them. And so how do we manage that part of it? That's a great question. And I feel like one of the biggest pieces is letting our kids have a say. So in our house, the way we describe it is like, my son always says, can I have a balanced plate? And he understands like, these are foods that we have all of the time, Mm -hmm. because I know that they provide me with blah, 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 blah. And I want to give you guys some examples of that. But then he also recognizes, because he's been, we have a lot of conversations associated with, these are foods that we have occasionally, but he understands because we've built enough balanced plates that that's going to be a smaller portion on the plate versus all of the other things. So I think the way that we're wording it is the things that we have all of the time for these reasons. So I teach him about, we eat this because it's going to provide with this. So I'll give you guys some examples with that, with like protein rich foods and carbs and stuff. But, and then the other portion of the plate, again, you're building it so that they can see that visually, um, that, okay, yeah, you can have something that isn't that food you're having all of the time that you're having occasionally, whatever you want that to be. And I don't make him have to have something. I let him choose what all of that, okay, go pick a protein from the fridge. And then he goes, he picks out whatever protein he wants from the fridge, pick a fruit from the fridge, whatever he wants in relation to that, pick a vegetable from the fridge, pick whatever you want, pick, um, your, pick your food that you eat occasionally from 
the treats or wherever that is going to be in our house. And then he puts that there. And I let him, even as a five-year-old child, choose all of that versus me saying, you have to eat this thing. He has so much choice and so much say in that. And we find that that is super helpful for him versus us saying that, okay, this is what everybody's having. You have to have that. And forcing him to do that doesn't work for him. He like he doesn't want foods to touch. He likes the idea of like, okay, this is what I feel like having. And we find that that's, um, we find that to be super helpful. So like, for example, some of the ideas here, um, that I wrote down were like, protein rich foods are going to make your muscles stronger. And we always talk about like him being a superhero or a super kid. So he's thinking about, okay, how does this provide me with something that I want to be? And it needs to be something that's relevant to the kid. So you're more so thinking about how can you add more of that like vocabulary about all the good things. So they're naturally drawn to want to have those things versus this is healthy. You're kind of saying, okay, if you pick eggs, eggs are going to make your muscles stronger or if you pick sweet potato or rice, those are going to make it so you can run faster. So you're thinking about the ways in which those foods are going to be relevant for their life and the things that they're interested in. My son loves running, right? So um, things like vegetables. So those are like, okay, they're going to help you not get sick. They're going to help you be able to see better. They're going to be able, or, and then with fats, it's like, the, those are going to help your brain. So they're going to make it make it so that when you're trying to figure out that math problem, your brain can figure it out because you have healthy fats in your diet. So you're teaching them all the reasons why those foods would directly impact the things that they care about and the way that that's going to impact their life versus putting all the attention on the fact that the, the things that we're eating occasionally aren't, you're not really like hyping those up, right? You're not really like going like, Oh yeah, that sugary snack or that occasional treat is going to, make you feel really good or make it so that you, you know, you're almost like not building it up. They already know it's going to taste good. They already know that they freaking want it. Yes. But you're not building it up in the same way that you're really hyping up all those other foods in ways that is very, um, yeah, just going to directly impact them. And then the last thing is like, honestly, just asking your kids for input. Like I'm going to the grocery store. I'm, what do you want me to add to the list? And like, just let that be. If they want to add this and this and this to the list, great. And then you can connect the dots for them. What a great choice because that's going to help you with, again, connecting back to the last thing that we're talking about. You're just letting them have a lot of input versus it being like, you need to do this or you need to do that. You're just kind of letting it be. And then as my last point is just letting it like, honestly, screw perfect this like idea of like my kids are always going to eat fruits and vegetables and proteins all of the time right man no look at a meal time i don't know what your house is like but our (laughs) meal times are like so chaotic like we try we really try but our kids are young maybe when they're a little bit older it's not going to be like so crazy chaotic but i think just like not just allowing that to not be perfect which is going to sometimes mean like chips and blueberries are like on the same plate and totally there is no protein cool you don't we're at eight we may be out of protein one scoop of peanut butter (laughs) yeah Yeah, we may be out of protein or they don't choose protein for that meal cool just let it be versus forcing i think the more that we force the more that we get them into a place where they don't feel comfortable they, they almost start to create that same stigma of like oh this is like 
um, this is a big deal, right? And it's almost it's it's forbidden fruit. I'm good if I eat this. I'm bad if I eat that. Totally. And we don't want that. We as adults, Mm -hmm. and you work in this space very frequently, we try to unlearn that behavior to stop when we're full. How many people do you work with that don't even know what that means? Mm -hmm. That recognition of what hunger really feels like and what it means to stop, right? Our kids innately have that. Mm -hmm. And so when we get to, when we make food a big deal, Mm-hmm. right and we overthink it and we try to make it this thing they do too mm-hmm. right totally. and I think so when you say Theodore is picking his vegetable he's picking his protein he's picking and I'm just like oh my god nope honestly that's what I'm thinking as you're saying I'm like I love that that works for your family we go about it in a similar way but a little bit different I make sure that there's lots of variety on the table and you don't have to eat all of it, but this is what we have to choose from. Because if I let Felix and Nolan and eventually Coralie, if everybody's picking foods for their plates and none of it is the meal that I've created, I'm just going to lose my shit. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's, if that feels daunting to somebody who's listening, um, right. And going, well, of course, because she's the fitness, she's the nutritionist. Of course that works in her family. Right. It doesn't have to be perfect. And you can, massage that into the way that that works best for your family and for me I never used to when I grew up it was like meat potato vegetable and that's what you had and I remember my dad always saying what's for dessert and my mom's like I don't make dessert like your mom always did that was like just every single supper was how it went Mm -hmm. and so for me when I started working with Ange and learning more about food it was really important to me to change that, right? And I didn't realize it at first, but now there's so many times where we don't have a starch at supper. It's not a big deal for me to cook cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, and have chicken, mm-hmm. right? And then, uh, you know, then when they do want fruit after or they want to have a snack after or whatever that looks like, it builds into that kind of starchy place that maybe... I just didn't put on the table kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing that you've done that I, we do in our house, but it's more around bedtime snacks and maybe bedtime snacks. I don't know if you're like going to scowl at me because I feed my kids bedtime snacks, but we, I grew up with bedtime snacks and my kids have bedtime snacks. They ask for it. So yeah. Anyways, maybe that's a a bad thing that I do, but. No, it's not. It's not. And I would say do what works for your family. Absolutely. But I think you touch on a couple interesting points. So like, let that be something that they look forward to. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But I would say there's a big piece of it in terms of like moving forward. If you notice that like certain things cause certain behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I think it's like correlating that. So for example, your kids eat bedtime snacks and then all of a sudden they like can't sleep or they have to take a poop like 20 minutes later. You can recognize that that's, that's not working for your family because there's some digestive like stuff going on with kids so that would be the only reason why I would say like sometimes with bedtime snacks if your kid is a nighttime pooper it can sometimes then cause something in relation to that but I wouldn't say that that I don't think that there's any hard and fast rules and I would just say the biggest piece is like talking to our kids in the same way that we talk to them about emotions so for example um when it comes to food feelings we want to have those conversations literally from like 
as soon as they can start to talk about food, and it's not in a good and bad food. It's more so uh, this food makes me feel this. When I eat this, it makes me feel this way. Mm-hmm. Like, so what often happens is I think, for example, in, in uh, schools, you'll either bring an unhealthy lunch or a really healthy lunch, and then the kids around you start saying something. Or you're a teacher. The teachers say it. Totally. Right? Felix, last year, when he was in JK, he would come home and he would say, Mom, don't put a fruit roll-up in my lunch. And I'm like, why? And he said, well, I, I get in trouble for, for eating a fruit roll-up. I'm like, you don't get in, I know he doesn't get in trouble for it, but I know that's not allowed at first snack. First snack is a healthy snack. Yeah. Right. And so if he goes to open that, it's like, oh, no, no, you can't have that. That's not a healthy snack. Yeah. My, my son had the same situation, not with a teacher, but with another girl that was like telling him what to do all of the time of like, no, you're not allowed to eat that at first break, whatever. But yeah, so I would say that happens. But the fact that our kids can come home and have those conversations with us in relation to that and the way that it makes us feel opens up that conversation as they become older, especially when it comes to pressure associated with like looking a certain way. Right. Right. And so I think so often if we can just start having those conversations about the way that things make you feel, this hurts my stomach when I eat this thing, they're starting to connect the dots of like, okay, I understand when I eat this, it's high in fiber. Okay. It's going to help me have a good poop. And you can have that conversation with your kid, right? Like you can have a lot of those things and you're just really twisting it in a way that's really positive and really like, this is going to benefit you in this way. And I think so often with diet culture, it's all about take it out, take it out, take it out. Don't have this. Right. Versus if we just keep on boosting up all the things that like people should be including with not wording it in a way like this is healthy. It's more just like the benefit of having this is this. Right. You know? So I think it's, I think that's what I see the most often that's what I see most often is like, if we have those conversations all of the time, our kids have no shame, like coming home and saying like, Hey, this is how I feel about right. this. And I, I don't have a daughter, but obviously you do. And yeah. having that conversation, so she's not feeling like I have to eat these small amounts to therefore be skinny. Right. Exactly. And and she's probably going to hear that from her friends. I know. Right? And, and that I think is the, that, right. Yes. And I don't want that to be, that is, uh, and not just her, but my boys too, but Mm -hmm. but I know it's more of a female media. That's the culture that we live in. Right. And so that is absolutely a concern of mine Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. sure. And I would say too, like, honestly, you don't have to fix what you find out. Like for example, with the fruit roll-ups, still send the fruit roll-ups or still like allow that to happen. We just need to have those conversations versus like trying to say, okay, well, I'm never going to send the fruit roll-up again. You can only eat fruit, you can only eat fruit roll-ups when you're at home. Right. And then that's what happens, right? Those sorts of situations come up of like the rules that either school creates or that they hear from wherever, whether that's at like a friend's house, right? They create these like hard and fast rules and we don't have to necessarily fix it. If you, if you're just essentially asking the child, like, well, how do you feel about that? Well, I kind of want to eat a fruit roll at my first break. Cool. 
unless like the teacher is literally going to be like, you can physically not have that. Just let them, let them do that. Versus as soon as we create these like hard and fast rules, you cannot do that. It's the same thing as adults. Kids are mini us. They literally are like, okay, fruit roll-ups. I'm going to eat like five fruit roll-ups every night because I know I can't eat them in another time. And I think the more, I don't know how to word it, but the more that we make it, that it's like not even a big deal at all the better our kids are versus trying to really control it. And I see that, I would say that I see that with my kids already. Um, Well, for the first two years of Nolan's life, he wouldn't eat, he still won't eat chocolate, but he doesn't, he wouldn't eat treats. He had no, that's changed. (laughs) But for the first, his palate had no desire for it. Right. Yeah. Um, And so in relation to kind of that bedtime snack, Felix will often ask, he won't ask for a specific thing. He'll ask for a snack tray. He likes the variety and the snack tray might have like ketchup rice cakes on it or actual ketchup chips, right? Cheese, and maybe some ham roll-ups or sometimes it's blueberries and strawberries and chips or right like but so that there is they just in that there's choice Mm -hmm. right and he might say mom I don't want the bananas can I have more Mm -hmm. apple sure you can Nolan do you want Felix's banana yeah okay can he have your apples that you're not right like there's there's not this stress around it there's not and it's sometimes they do ask for more chips but Equally, they ask for more fruit, more protein, more dairy, more whatever, right? It's not, and so allowing that, not going, nope, you can't have any more chips, but you can have more of this, right? Which we're, we we tend to want to do going, yep, you can have one more handful of chips, but the next night they're not asking for the chips. They're asking for more apple. They're asking for more of this because it's all equal. Yep. And I mean, like, honestly, Tell them you're out of something. <laughs> like our kids are so young. You can tell them. Mm-hmm. You are literally, no, I am so sorry. We are all out of gummy bears. We have no gummy bears left. Okay, cool. Kids like get over it if like totally. that's the piece. And they for, they kind of forget the next day. They're like, oh yeah, we got more gummy bears. Mom must have went to the store totally. and got more gummy bears. Right? And so I feel like there's a piece of that too that instead of making it like you can't have more, there's a piece of it where we can kind of play if they're young. For Our sure. kids are young enough that we could do that little bit of play. Oh, we're all out of that. We got this or this. Yeah. Cool. And then they like. Well, and that's even real. Like Nolan the other day, he's like, mom, can I have more cantaloupe? I'm like, sorry, dude, we ate an entire cantaloupe. There is none left. We'll put it on the list. So as soon as I say, we'll put it on the list, even if I don't put it on the list, he's like, okay, we're getting cantaloupe. Right. So that's. And they forget about it. Like we, we forget that they, they have their little brains are not going to remember 24 hours from now. Or if they do, you're like, Oh yeah, you're right. We did need to add that to the list. But I think so often we feel as though we either need to fix it or make them feel better like immediately versus I think that, yeah, I think those conversations are so crucial where instead of being like, no, you can't have that. And I'm like, oh, totally. And there's times when I say it's going on the list and it doesn't go on the list. And I actually literally forget it at the grocery store and a little mom, did you get shreddies? I'm like, Oh, buddy, I totally forgot. I'm going to put them on the next list. And he's like, okay. (laughs) And and that's where aiming to not be perfect is actually so brilliant. Because like being a little forgetful and a little not perfect with our kids is great. Because then there's no expectation of like, my mom is always perfect. She never forgets anything. She always makes sure that everything is blah, 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 blah. 
honestly, just be a little bit more forgetful or make a few more mistakes with our kids. And then they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, mom does forget things sometimes. And that's okay. And it's almost, it's better for our kids to expect that versus like expecting that mom, she never forgets anything. She always adds it to the list right away. And like, she's always gotten, and I think that's where... I don't know how you feel, but I think so often I see that with moms that are like so overwhelmed and so stressed out because they're trying to be perfect in every single way. And for sure. Yeah. So I have have a funny story. It's not food related, but it makes me think of being imperfect in front of our kids. And this is like, it's going to sound ridiculous. Like you're actually not going to believe this. Um, But my son is five and his dad loves hunting. So Felix already has compound bow he has I don't know what the other kind of bow is but he has the other like one that I think of Robin Hood it's got like the string and it's like a bow (laughs) but the other one's a compound bow anyways we go down to the pond he has this compound bow and we find a snake I almost I'm going actually for a run around the the pond was the plan I almost step on this snake and I'm like okay girl keep it together Mm -hmm. but I'm having a like mini meltdown Felix like let's shoot the snake I'm like okay so he's like mom you try so he missed a couple times and I missed like probably seven times he's like mom it's okay that you're bad at aiming I was just like thanks (laughs) true the snake totally lived we didn't shoot it at all because we both missed it but it was just funny that he was just like mom it's okay that you're bad at aiming but when I think of like the actual hilarity of the entire story that I'm trying to shoot a snake with my son's bow is very ridiculous in and of itself. But now you know I'm bad at aiming and my five-year-old forgives me for it. So Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> and I feel like it's in those little moments where we see our kids like replicate that back that we're like, oh, okay, this is good. This is really great that he's understanding that like it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to not be perfect. It's okay to like, for sure. And miss a lot of the shots that we take, right? Totally. And he has displayed a little bit of fear around snakes this year for the first time ever. So me, I'm like, okay, keep your stuff together, Ashley. Don't panic. Don't freak out. And he was totally, totally fine around the snake. And so I think that mimicking behavior, it shines through in so many other areas, right? I didn't want, I don't want him to have a fear of snakes just because I do. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it, it comes down to food. It comes down to parenting in all other capacities, but yeah, that was just a little funny aside. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are the most badass family. We're literally <laughs> that's listening to this. That's like, oh my God, they shoot snakes with oh a fucking bow and arrow. God. They are. Yeah. Just, yeah. It's it, that part's funny to me. Babe. I know. That's why I'm thinking like, this is not your typical story COVID <laughs> lockdown story of like what do I do with my children <laughs> oh we go and shoot snakes totally but yeah anyways we should Love it. we should get back on course here sorry totally 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 um so yeah should we do our next question yes let's dive in all right so um the next one here is when is the best time to weigh yourself how should often should you do it and maybe just the ins and outs of that and you're the one that actually asked me kind of the segue for this question right of like I honestly yeah I want to know because I've done I know that when I weigh myself at certain times in the day it changes Mm -hmm. um and so 
my husband, I see him sometimes jump on the scale, like after supper or like before bed, after we've like eaten supper and gone about a whole day and he like hops on the scale and he's like, I'm up five pounds. I'm like, that's because you have to weigh yourself in the morning after you poop. And he's like, he looks at me like sideways, but I'm like, you would not catch me getting on a scale right now with my clothes on. I like literally take my wedding ring off to weigh myself. <laughs> earrings, like, out. earrings come out. My ponytail. Yeah, I take necklace, my ponytail yeah. out. My everything, necklace. Anything. Like literally everything. If I'm like, hey, I could clip my toenails and be down like <laughs> one pound. I am going to do it. <laughs> totally. Totally. And so I think it depends on the purpose of weighing yourself. Right. So, for example, do you want the most accurate or the most consistent number? No, I want the lowest. Right? And so most women women feel that way. I want it to be the lowest, which is fine. But I feel like if you want accurate data, you need to keep every variable the same. Your husband, does he? He can weigh himself every night in whatever capacity he is but you want to control as many variables as possible so So like the fact that he may have ate three pounds of food that day or may have ate five pounds of uh, food that day or maybe has inflammation in his body because he worked out that day all of those variables are too hard to control whenever you're looking at data you want it to be the most consistent possible so yes after you do the run and the poop and well, I'll tell you guys the optimal time in my opinion, but for you, you may see middle of the day, you are down a little bit, but can you always control all those variables every single day? Can you commit to drinking the exactly same amount of water and like getting the exactly same amount of sleep and like exercising or whatever all those variables are? Can you control it every single day? Most of the time, you can't. So when is the most optimal time? First thing in the morning, pee or poop, whatever it is you got to do. No clothes on. If you want to take your fucking ponytail, (laughs) take your ponytail out. Because you really, whatever you do consistently, you want that to be the thing that you're always doing. Right. But yeah, the least amount of variables that would change day to day. Okay. Is what matters most. Right. The second piece is, depending on... The way that you view it, I love weighing myself every day because when I'm looking at like data from the week, yeah, you have low days. You also have high days. For me, seeing all of that variance is like, oh shit, today is a high day and I don't stress about it. I feel like when you look at the weekly average and you're seeing the trend in the direction that you're hoping for, if you're hoping for fat loss or hoping to see that you're gaining some muscle or whatever you're aiming for, Mm -hmm. seeing seven days of like data is super, super helpful. Only having one day, hoping that that Wednesday, like for me, I was going to say, you have a Wednesday check-in, but is that the weekly average? weekly average. Oh, because I'm like, what if you get on the scale and you're like weekly up two average. pounds that day? Weekly oh, average okay, based yeah, yeah. on weekly average from the, the week before. And right. I can't do it with every single client because them stepping on the scale will make or break their day to the point of like, I'm not going to eat for the next 24 hours because the scale was up. And I know psychologically there's going to be people listening to this episode that are like, Oh my God, to weigh myself every single day would mess with me. For me, it was like literally submerging myself all of the time to realize, Oh yeah, big day. And then you have a three pound poop that just comes out of your mind. This makes a lot of sense. There goes Sunday supper. Right? And so, and 
I have some days that are higher in carbohydrates. So then when carbs go into your system, they need to be stored in muscle. So then the glycogen is going Uh to essentially attach to water and it's going to make the number goes up. So yeah, I would say, I would say that weekly averages are really helpful for a lot of people, but I also understand that psychologically for some people, they're going to be like, Oh my God, to do that. And so would mess with me in my, if you're not doing, sorry, in my, if you're not doing the, like you can't weigh yourself every day, I generally do, but I tweak it to like meet my psychological needs. Yeah. Um, Sunday is like a big meal day for us. It's always like food, booze, family, fun, but I don't, I eat dessert. I eat a lot of dessert. I enjoy that day. And I know that that derails or slows down some of what I'm hoping to achieve, but I'm not willing to give up that day. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if we're having pizza, I eat as much pizza as my body wants to have. It's not a binge thing, but I eat until I'm full. Um, I drink beer. Mm -hmm. Typically, I don't drink beer throughout the week. Sundays is like my beer day, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I know that Monday morning is already stressful enough. I know that I'm going to be back on track. That's my first workout back into everything. Usually it starts with like a fast, all of those things. But I don't weigh myself on Mondays. And that's fine. That's because I'm psychological. Like, I know I'm going to be up probably four pounds. See, and I think it's, and I can understand, I guess it depends on you. Like me, it's so funny. So on Monday morning of this particular week, it was literally up like almost eight pounds from where it was on Wednesday. I'm like, that's two, that's literally like two days in between. But because I know that like, okay, I know that this is really high from the weekend. My two higher carb days are always Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. Sings up with our family. I know that is going to always be. But totally. then I, as soon as I see that swing back downwards, oh yes, this is massive. And, but I know that that's the flow of every week. Right. So it just depends on you. Like totally. for me seeing that, I'm like, I know that that could like screw somebody up, but totally. for me, I'm like, the more that I do that, the more that it's like, this isn't a big deal. And totally. so, yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things where I just want the person that's listening to know it is not possible to gain seven pounds of fat in two days. Like right. that is not possible. There's so many factors. You have water, you have muscle mass, you have glycogen, you have poop, you have hormones. You literally have like, so many things that are going to influence. I don't know about you, but literally where I place my scale I in my I move it sometimes. I move it sometimes. I'm like, that's not true. I don't believe no, you. <laughs> 1,000%. Where your scale is placed on yes. your freaking floor is going to influence yes. that number. So I know we talk about like not worrying about the scale. It's a great piece of data. I just think it's like whatever that is going to be, For sure. please don't let it deflate your ability to show up that day to commit to what it is that you're doing, but not punish yourself. Not the like, shit, you're up seven pounds. Girl, you can't eat all day. You better like do three hours of cardio and work your brains off. I don't think, I don't think that's the answer. I think it's like, okay, cool. This is where this number is. But regardless, every single day this week, I was going to show up this way either way. Right. I was still going to move. I was still going to move in the direction of my goals versus feeling as though that number matters. And I feel like so often we think about, okay, I'm trying so hard. So therefore I should see this particular number on the scale. And I, 
I don't know if it's that. I think it's like, regardless of the number of the scale, do you want to rock the lifestyle or not? And the time's going to pass anyway. So what the fuck else are you going to do, girl? Yeah. The time is going to pass. So are you going to do your workout today? Just do your fucking workout. Yeah. Screw the scale. And like, yeah, it's a good piece of like, yeah, it's a good piece of data to use. But I think so often don't let it either inflate or deflate your ability to show up doing the actions that you were going to do that day anyways. Totally. I agree with that completely. So if, if for the person listening, they're like, okay, hey, I can't weigh myself every day. Your girls are crazy. Cool. When is the best day? In my brain, I go Friday because I've got a whole week of generally living on kind of like the way that we do. I've probably at that point, hopefully had my workouts in. i I've tried to get my cardio in probably hasn't happened but I'm getting there would Friday be a good day or no I do Wednesdays I I suggest Wednesdays and not everybody is going to agree but I think it's too I don't know I just the whole Monday to Friday I think messes with you in the standpoint of like you have a really good way in on Friday that either makes you do good on the weekend or not I think just separating yourself from the weekend is really helpful so I think like Wednesday is like a couple of days but maybe not as extreme as what a Friday weigh-in would be I think Wednesdays are like middle of the week but depending on your schedule whether you work nights whether you have kids like there's so many things that would influence that but you kind of want it like middle ground don't make it that you've had five fucking awesome days that you're perfect and then you're therefore going to change your behavior on the weekend. Wednesday is right. kind of a good middle, but I would suggest at least a couple of days so that you can kind of submerge yourself and be like, okay, if, if the scale matters to you, a couple of days can just go like, ah, okay, we'll see how Saturday is. But regardless, I think often the scale weight comes down after pictures. So the biggest piece of advice I would have for people is like take pictures of your body oh my gosh at stages like oh my gosh. I wish before I ever lost weight that I had more pictures of what my body physically looked like with no clothing <laughs> like or like just like totally. raw and underwear but I didn't I don't have any and I have these like I have pictures but so often I didn't want my picture taken and mm. now I look back now I'm like oh girl I just wish just from the standpoint of like on those days when I don't feel like like oh you should try harder you should do more you're not doing enough you look back on that and you're like ah no girl you're good you have worked so hard don't stress about it and I have a cache of pictures and it was from like over a year ago you're like you got to take some before or no you asked me if I had before pictures because I was kind of already doing it before we dove in on a program and I was like yeah I think so you're like okay we got to get those in there I'm like oh I don't want to right but now when I look back I'm like there's two things I think I think holy fuck your closet's a disaster (laughs) and wow you have changed so much and you that's something it's tangible it's so tangible but it's I think it's so much more the, the scale is so fluctuating for sure I've been so and it doesn't low. show you anything it, it just tells you a number right yes. and so what that number is and I have done this I don't know if you've ever googled but you can google women at different weights oh I know Right? And so based on heights and based on weights, like 150 pounds can look so different. They show like 10 bodies Mm -hmm. and it's like, this is what 150 pounds looks like on all of these different frames. And it's like, oh, well, I don't know which one of those I am. Right? And think about like 150. 
150 pounds of feathers versus 150 pounds of muscle or however you want to visualize that. Yeah. The amount of space that those things take up looks so damn different. different. For sure. And I would say like, I don't, I think, did you end up buying the same scale as me? The Withings one? Yes. 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 Yeah. So the body fat percentage obviously fluctuates on there too, based on water and, um, yeah, mostly just water and just because of the way that it looks at body fat. So it's going to sway back and forth. But that's one of those really cool things that over time, if you have like a general idea of body fat percentage, you're just like, huh, okay, I can recognize that at this weight, I'm now carrying 20, 30, 40 pounds more muscle than what I did. Like I look at the way that I look at right now and I'm like, oh man, at this weight in any time previous in my life, I wouldn't have looked the same way that I do. And it's really just because of how much more muscle I have on my body. For sure. So, and I think that body weight or that like body fat percentage is so huge because I remember you saying you were at a 4% body fat. Mm -hmm. You didn't have a period and you still felt like you weren't, fit enough, slim enough, enough, lean enough. Right. And it's like 4% of your body has fat on it. Like it's dispersed. It's probably in your brain mostly to like keep or your organs. Totally. Right. And so that is a really important piece of the puzzle. Right. And so body mass index, does that come in to play? No. Okay. No, no. For example, anybody that has muscle, you're screwed on body mass index. Like if I put in me right now, my height and my weight, it says that I am morbidly obese. Because it has to do with the amount of weight has no idea with Mm -hmm. muscle mass and it has to do with your weight and your height. And that's the only thing it looks at with BMI. So you're tall would be different for you. You probably be fine. And my whole life, people, I've told people on my weight and they're like, yeah, but you're tall. I'm like, that is bullshit. But it is. And I don't know if you, I once heard, again, I have no idea where, but for every inch of height, there should be an extra five pounds of whatever. So if I'm, so if I'm three inches taller than you, I should be 15 pounds heavier Oh, to, for I've us to have that. a comparable weight. Would that make sense or no? I've never heard that, but uh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Hmm. So if we were to compare our body weights, but we can't because I'm obviously tall and you're a little bit shorter. Well, how much, and so how tall are you? I'm five nine. And I'm five two. So what would that be? Seven, Seven times, times five. 35. There's no, no, that's totally unrealistic. There's no way you were 35 pounds heavier than me. I definitely am not. You know, you're not. No, no. So yeah, no, no. I would say that probably comes in the same places as the BMI. Of like measuring fat and muscle is just, you can't. Yeah, you can't. You can't. Like for example, like right now, 120 pounds of my body is muscle mass. So, like, the lowest I could be if I were to not lose any muscle in dieting, I would have my muscle mass, and then obviously you have your bones and, like, all that other stuff. So, like, the lowest that I could be, like, probably with all those things combined would be, like, 130. And that would be, like, super shredded, like, right? And Mm -hmm. so, with that in mind, it's, like... Yeah, I just don't think that those numbers could be relevant for anybody that has muscle mass because, it, yeah, just would make zero. That makes sense. Makes zero sense. And I, I do recall, it was actually, I believe it was 
it was in grade school. And my dad, of all people, we were talking about weight, I guess they had like an old cow scale or something. And he was talking about his weight staying the same, blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, how much do you guys weigh? So I was on the scale and I was in, I think I was in grade seven and I weighed 123 pounds. And my brother looked at me, he's like, she's fat. And dad's like, no, because just, I was very athletic. He's like, you don't weigh 123 pounds, look like that and be a fatty. Like he was just like, it was muscle, right? And he has always said muscle weighs more than fat. And you corrected me. You said, Mm -hmm. no, muscle weighs the same amount as fat. You just, it takes up a different amount of space. Less space. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I I have always weighed more, but it's muscle. I mean, I've gone through a fat loss weight part two, but like that's, that's always stuck with me. That little piece of just like, and I think so often people get so they, they hear that too, of like muscle weighs more than fat, blah, 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 blah. For sure. It's very common to think that. I think so often though, it is so hard for the woman who like, she's working so hard and no matter what, those scale always says 160 mm-hmm. all of the time, every single time. Yeah. But yet her body composition and that's where I like, I know we've been talking about the scale weight for a while here, but literally there is shifts that can happen where you reduce body fat on your body and you also gain muscle mass simultaneously. So the scale is literally the exactly the same, which is actually if you're at a place where you're lean enough that you would notice those gains, maintaining is actually brilliant. Even though you and your brain are like, Oh, I would look so much better at 150. How the fuck do you know that? Right. How the fuck do you know that 150 is that number for you? And I think so often I see with numbers, one of the things I'll ask somebody in the client consul- consultation, they'll say, my goal weight is this. And I'll say, okay, when's the last time that you weighed that? Oh, I was 18 years old. <laughs> oh, yeah? How many babies have you had since that point? How many years have you been strength training since that point? Why is that the number in your brain? And I think so often, especially men probably do it too, but women in particular, like they get this certain number at some point in their life, yeah. they were there and they felt great. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so anything beyond that is really hard for us to like conceive as a number that would also make us feel great. For so. sure. And it's interesting. I was actually speaking with a client just the other day about how even at that time we thought we were overweight or we didn't totally. like our bodies. Right. But then we look at, back at that. And I'm like, man, why in grade 10 did I think I needed to lose weight? Like, man, like, you look I thought it was fat when I was so not even close. Right. Yeah, totally. And so having that picture of like, oh, I want to be what I was when I was 18. Were you happy at 18? Maybe you were. Maybe you totally were. Maybe you were so comfortable in your skin, but maybe you have the same mindset that you have right now. Mm-hmm. If only I looked different or if only I looked more like this, Mm -hmm. right? And so sometimes it's reframing even just the mind work around it. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So. All right. Well, we're at 55 minutes, but we do have one more question. So the last question we have here is essentially the one that you get asked. Yes. All of the Mm -hmm. time. And that is, I probably asked you some of these questions the first time I came to you. And that's just like what is Reiki, how many minutes, all of the like ins and outs for the person that's like has no idea. They want to see you. They want to work with you. They just have no idea like what it is that you would prescribe for them. For sure. And I do get asked, what does it look like? Right. So many people are like, okay, I am hook, line and sinker. I know I need what you 
are offering, right? But they, they can't get their head around kind of the fundamentals. They want to know what does that look like, right? So it's very much, this question is very much just about the fundamentals. Um, Reiki is energy work and we can dive in on that on like a different episode. Um, or you can visit my website or we can, we can go there, but I can't do this in five minutes, yeah. that, that piece. But the actual, what does it look like? What does it look like when you show up? Um, so I'll start at the beginning of that question, I guess. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. The first question I get asked is, how long should I book? So I offer four different sessions. There's the 30 minute, the 45, the 60, and 90 minute. And so each of those sessions, everybody kind of has its priced differently, but everybody has a different preference. Um, for your first session, the 60 minute is your best option. 90 is an awesome session, but hopefully if you're booking the 90, you've had some type of energy work that laying on a table for a very long or a longer period of time, you're not getting antsy, right? So that means that either you've meditated before or you've had energy work done on you before. Relaxing is not going to be a really difficult thing, right? The 45 is good as well, but the 60 allows for that major talk time that really happens in that first session. There's a lot of talking, kind of explaining prior to what that's going to look like. And then there's a bigger debrief after. We talk before and we debrief after every session, but there's just more for that first session because depending on your knowledge base, depending on the amount of energy that's released or what's showing up, that first session is, I wouldn't do a 30 minute and I would steer away from the 90. 45 is okay, 60 is best, would be the first kind of question that most people come at me who've never had one before and they go to that site and they're like, okay, I have no idea what's best for me. Um, so the 60 minute, if it's your first, is probably your best option. The second question that I get asked is in relation to this, what what's it look like when I get there? And I've had people ask me and like, fair enough, right? Do I have to, do I have to keep my clothes on? Do I have to take my clothes off? Like, what does this look like? Right. They don't even know if their shoes stay on for the session. Am I sitting? Am I lying? Am I standing? Am I right? And so when you come in the door, we greet each other. Hello. Hi. How's it going? Um, and then generally the client lays on their back if they're comfortable on their back. Some people aren't. And so we work around that. And so you lay on your back, we talk about what's showing up in your life, why you're here, and then we do a little mini med meditation, and then the treatment begins. And then the next part of that question that you've asked is, many people following the treatment, what they ask is, so how often should I be doing this, right? And that one is a bit trickier, because almost every first client asks me that. When should I book again? How do I know? What does that look like? Right. And so generally, I would say if it's your first treatment and you don't know, three weeks is a really good base. If you've done Reiki before and you're super intuitive and you know your tells is what I call them, then go based on that. So for some people, I have some clients who they book every five weeks. They just know that that's when they start to kind of lose their grip a little bit. That's when the anxiety maybe creeps back in. That's when they stop sleeping. And so everybody has different ways of knowing what that feels like. But for the first session, it's a bit tricky because you're like, well, I feel good now, but 
when will I not feel good? Will I not feel good? I don't know. There's no actual, that's just the baseline. It's just starting, right? And so as you do more Reiki treatments, you start to go based on your intuition of like, oh, I can tell I need an appointment, right? And for some people that shows up very like cyclical in that every six weeks, I know I need to book. And for other people, it's Life goes on and all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, I need to book an appointment. I don't feel like me anymore, right? And so it's a little bit different for every person. I like to think of it similar to a car and bringing it to the shop. So usually the first time somebody comes, they're like bringing in a clunker. They're maybe carrying the wheel and it's like, can you fix me in an hour? It's like, We'll get the wheel back on, we'll get you moving, but you need to come back for more work kind of thing. Um, not always, but generally, that's kind of the first session is a little bit, people are at a point of, I don't know what else to do, right? So that's kind of when you take your car into the shop and you're like, she's fucked, she's totally fucked, I don't know, can you sell me a new one? Like, nope, this is your car for life, right? And so... There's a lot of work to be done on that one car. But over the course of time, as that car is repaired, as it comes into itself again, and you start to notice like, oh, shit, there's a whole bunch of like good stuff under the dust on the dash there, right? I actually do like the color of my car when I get the mud off of there. Oh, oil changes are good, right? And so there gets to a point of maintenance where you know what it what your car should sound like. You know what your car should look like. You know what it should feel like when it drives, Right. But if you're always just driving around a clunker and just trying to get from point A to point B without it breaking down, you don't really ever know what it feels like to drive a car that feels really good, mm -hmm. right? And so when it comes to booking appointments, over the course of time, you get to a point where you're like, ooh, I need an oil change, right? Or, ooh, I, I need that, like... I need that maintenance Reiki. I can feel things aren't running quite as smoothly. I need to fill up my tank. I need to, you know, that being said, I do have some clients who I see on a weekly basis, basis or bi-weekly, but I don't want you there if you don't need to be there kind of thing either. So if you're not in crisis, coming once a week, it's like taking your car into the shop and being like, hey, here's my car. I don't think anything's wrong. And I'm like, cool, we'll polish it. We'll get her shined up. We'll make it, you know, we'll... Kind of like a car wash. Yeah, where you're like, it's a car wash. But really, you come out of that and you're like, okay, my car looks nicer. It feels good. Yes. But did I need to do that? Maybe not. Right? So everybody's a little bit different. Some people want that shiny car and like, you know what? I always feel better when I'm completely shined up. Cool. And other people are like, car washes are for the birds. It's a waste of money. I'm only going when I need to. Right. And so it's a little bit different. But yeah, for that very first client, I would recommend the three week mark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And would you say that sometimes there's times when you let them know how bad it is and how like you recommend, like, for example, you're saying like, they're only able, you're only able to do this in that first session, knowing that they need this and this and this and this moving forward. Are there ever times when you go, Hey, you know what? I think we're probably going to need six sessions to really bring you back to where you're hoping to be based on the initial conversation of like, like, for example, I'm thinking about how this relates to my practice in that, like somebody wants to do something and I say, Hey, you know what? Like, 
I would suggest four months, six months, 12 months mm-hmm. based on what it is. So is there maybe, maybe you already do this, but is there a possibility to even explore that of like, Hey, you know what? This is, I don't know, really open and we need to really work through this. So I would suggest like six sessions. And you know, maybe that is something to explore. It's not something that I've typically dabbled into um usually the client knows like that first session depending on what kind of comes forward and people's comfort so the thing with your energy is it's your body your energy it's not going to release anything that is not safe for you to do so um or it's not meant to at that time Mm -hmm. right so I had one client and she told me she's like I have a sore right shoulder and it never came up in all of her sessions Mm -hmm. right And then there was one session where it totally released. She's like, oh my God. And it was just like, it was just the right time, right? So sometimes there's certain things that we hold on to, things that we think are baggage, but we have to either learn the lesson, we have to, or we have to, it's part of the longer path. Gotcha. Right? So there's certain things that we carry around with us that are just like total garbage and we can let go of. They're no longer serving us, but we hold on to them anyways. Right? But there's certain things that we hold on to and there's a purpose to that thing that you maybe need that for the next five years. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it's gone. It's done. It's over. And so then it can be released. But it's not, Reiki will not ever release anything that your body and your energy is not safe or willing to do so. Interesting. Yeah. And I feel like there's probably a piece of that where in one session or in, I don't know, one interaction with somebody that like probably feels like just scratching the surface first date first, like, huh, okay. I'm sure that there's a piece of it that like. For sure. There's, and it's a bit tricky because everybody's is a little bit different for some people. Mm. That first treatment is like a miracle Mm -hmm. they are they walk out of there and they're like oh my god I have never been so free in my life I feel like me right and for some people they're like "Eh, I don't know that was cool yeah that was cool felt good but I don't know and that miracle session happens six months down the road on their fifth session six years whatever it is right Mm -hmm. um yeah, and that happened for you, right? That first totally. session, you're like, okay, that was cool. Yeah, you've, like, dug out some stuff. I, the, Based on what you're saying to me, holy shit, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it was probably your sixth session or fourth or something. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, like... And it wasn't until it was, like, exploding and breaking mm-hmm. yeah. into my everyday. And I guess it just depends on the per- on the person in relation to that. But I think there's probably a piece of it where, like... Till it really messes with your life, yeah. you're kind of like, oh, I can, I can keep you together, like yeah. semi. For so, sure. Yeah. And, and how open somebody is. So sometimes yeah. people show up and they're like totally open and other people are like, mm, people say you can fix this, but probably you can't. So we'll see. And that's right? kind of like manifesting, right? Yeah. It's kind of like that piece of like, I'm ready to receive you. Yes. I'm ready for this to come into my life versus yes. the people that are attracting or manifesting what they believe to be a whole bunch of bad shit being yes. like drawn to them. So I'm sure there's a piece yeah. of that when it comes to being open and closed, but like what you're attracting energetically has to do with the open and closed, right? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Yeah. 
So, yeah. Cool. But anyways, we should probably round this up. Oh, my goodness. We love chatting. Even under the stairs right now. I know. I know. And I just love that it's, like, all my kids, like, old clothes. I turn around. My shoes up there. All my clothes from when I backpacked from Europe. I sewed them all together. I'm just like, oh. Uh, And Jamie's got a hockey stick with signatures on it. It's a happy birthday. That's actually my cousin's. He played in the NHL. It's kind of, like, a big deal that we have that sticker. But it's funny and Energetically, when I think about like all of this stuff, if any of this stuff like holds energy, it's quite funny. That is quite funny. Anyways, we will catch you guys next week. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. uh, Yeah. If you guys have more questions, we will certainly answer them in an upcoming Q&A. But other than that, thanks for joining us. Excellent. That's episode 11. Thanks, guys.